wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. Welcome to the now playing Mad Max movie retrospective series. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Hosted by Jacob. I've seen the style before. Terminal psychotic. Stuart. I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. And Arnie. A burnt out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons in his past. This podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. You! You can run, but you can't hide! Listener discretion is advised. But this ain't one body's tell. It's the tell of us all. And you've got to listen it and remember. Because what you hear today, you've got to tell the newborn tomorrow. Me discuss Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, starring Mel Gibson, Tina Turner, directed by George Miller and George Ogilvie, me master, me Arnie, me host of Now Playing. Is this to make me blaster? It's Stuart in LA, your raggedy man. And this is the host that has word stuff from his ass to his mouth, Jacob. So here we are at the Mad Max movie that I remember actually coming out in theaters. I remember the influences of Road Warrior. This one was when I was part of the MTV generation. I saw this video on TV so often, it's what brought me in. Gotta ask, the title, Beyond Thunderdome? Do they actually go to Thunderdome and then just keep going? Yeah, I think that Thunderdome's just going to be a stop for Max, and then he's going to go even further. It did confuse me. I never saw this in theaters. I always wondered, like, was there a Mad Max that I missed? Was there Mad Max Thunderdome? And Beyond Thunderdome was the sequel to that one. It was confusing to me as a child. Oh, wow. I never had that thought, and that is such a really intellectual and modern way of looking at it, because today, of (laughs) course, you'd seriously think that. Everything I remember about this movie came from clips that played in the We Don't Need Another Hero video, and I remember Tina like strutting around in that cool one of the living video where the camera is like wide angle following her through some hall with some torches or something. Yeah, I was there. But did I ever see this movie? I don't think so. This is probably the one I've seen the most just because it plays on cable all the time. And so yeah, this one I'm probably the most familiar with. Doesn't make it the best one, but it's the one I've seen the most. It was the one that said Mel Gibson is a star now. I feel like up to this point, Americans didn't know Mad Max, didn't probably know Mel Gibson. But by this point, I think he was gracing the cover of People magazine as Sexiest Man Alive. He was the first. Why was he the sexiest man alive? I knew he was the sexiest man alive. I just always chalked that up to Lethal Weapon. Who was he now to get that title? The River? (laughs) Didn't you love it? He was trying to save American (laughs) Farms with Sissy Spacek. I don't know. He's a handsome man. He was from Australia, a place that we were romanticizing. But he was born here. Yeah, Year of Living Dangerously. I think of him as being a dramatic actor who did these crazy motorcycle movies I hadn't seen until Lethal Weapon. And then he was a super American powerhouse. But maybe it's a generational thing. If we were older, we would know Mel from his dramas. 
but we only know him as an action star, which would come a little later. And this is where they finally got all the money they probably needed to do a Mad Max film. I mean, Road Warrior is a fine film. It's such a basic story, though. It's you need some cars that look cool, some shoulder pads, some leather Speedos, and you can tell that story. Here, they really go big. Without a doubt, whatever else I'm going to say about it is easily the best art-directed, most extreme vision. I don't think I enjoy the action more than Road Warrior, but yeah, they got money and they spend it well. It's up here on screen. But we're all impressed that Tina Turner is here, that she <laughs> seems to loom larger than Mel Gibson. I gotta say, Tina Turner, I didn't know her from movies when this came out. She now, of course, famously was the acid queen in The Who's Tommy. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but she's very scary. I can see why you'd get her for a villain, but why is she in this movie in 1985? Listen, I loved Tina at the this time. I didn't know about Ike and Tina. I didn't know about her other stuff, but when she came out with Private Dancer in 84, it rocked my house. It rocked my world. I mean, between Private Dancer, Better Be Good to Me, I Can't Stand the Rain, and of course, What's Love Got to Do With It, she was always on MTV. So I think that she was a get both for the song and for well, maybe not the acting, but she had acted before, as you pointed out. I would have thought they would have gone Aussie. I mean, by this point, Australian pop music was definitely breaking on American radio. In excess, Michael Hutchins, he was made for the movies. He definitely should have been in this movie. You want the chick from Midnight Oil? Yeah, Midnight Oil, the bald guy. <laughs> that guy was definitely made for it. Yeah, that seven foot tall bald guy. Yeah. He does seem like a George Miller creation. <laughs> he should be in this movie. He might have been the guy behind the hockey mask last time. We don't know. I don't know, but it just seems like, yeah, they're going for an international flair. Maybe by getting Tina, they're moving this away from Australia. I don't know. To me, this still feels like an Australian production. Yeah, they're going to the English sector of St. Louis for her. <laughs> she is from St. Louis. Don't let the British accent fool you. One of the other big differences here is we got two directors this time. Yeah, what's that about? Well, I don't know if you noticed at the very end of this film, right before the end credits, it said for Byron. Mm -hmm. This was dedicated to Byron. Byron Kennedy, who produced the first two Mad Max films, good friend of George Miller, he actually died in a helicopter crash while scouting locations for this film. Oh. And Miller was so distraught, he didn't even want to do it. And finally, George Ogilvie, who Miller knew, they split up duties. Miller was going to be in charge of the action scenes, and Ogilvie, he was going to do the dramatic stuff. I'm guessing Miller didn't want to deal with all these kids while he was mourning, because <laughs> that's really what Ogilvie ended up directing, was all the stuff with the kids. So now I've got someone to blame and I can feel better about Fury Road. Okay, good to know. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. I definitely feel like there's two different movies in here and so yeah, maybe it's attributable to the fact that there's two different people trying to tell the story, but that's interesting. We start in one place and we definitely go in a different one and I wasn't anticipating that. But I think we're tap dancing around the plot. Arnie, why don't you give it to him? We'll get into Beyond Thunderdome. Life is hard in the Australian outback after a nuclear war. Something Mad Max, played for the third time by Mel Gibson, finds out when an airplane pilot, played by Bruce Spence, buzzes his camels and robs all of Max's belongings. But Max knows there's only one place the thief can go, Bartertown, a forming city that actually has electricity. 
Looking for justice, Max goes, but the man has nothing to trade other than his fighting skills. As such, Max is taken before Bartertown's ruler, Auntie Entity, played by Tina Turner. Auntie is struggling for control of Bartertown with Master Blaster, the man, or men, who run the pig farm that supplies the methane that fuels the town. The reason I say men is because it's actually two men. Master, a little person with a big mind, who rides literally on the back of giant, muscular, but mentally retarded Blaster. Anti-Entity knows they need Master to keep the methane pumps running, and she thinks that without Blaster, the smaller man will cease to be so egotistical. As such, Entity makes Max a deal. She'll supply him with camels, fuel, whatever he needs, if he kills Blaster. And the way to do that is in the Thunderdome. When two citizens of Barter Town have a beef, two men enter, one man leaves. So Max picks a fight with Blaster, and the two men enter. When Max discovers that Blaster is mentally challenged, he refuses to kill the big man. Entity is furious, has her men kill Blaster, and for his betrayal, Max is sentenced to the Gulag, which in fact isn't a Russian prison, but a horseback ride with a silly mask. But when the horse dies, it looks like Max is in trouble until he's found by a young girl who takes him back to their camp. She and a community of children are the survivors of a 747 that crashed. The adults all left to find help, and the children have just waited for their return. When Max comes, they believe he is their prophesied savior who will take them to the fable city of Tomorrow Morrow Land. Max bursts their bubble, very content just to live with the children in their oasis, but a group go out on their own to find Tomorrow Morrow Land. Max and the others try to save them, and do stop all but one of the children from being sucked into a sand pit. But now there's nowhere for the group to go for supplies and transportation other than Barter Town. So there they go, and in the process, rescue Master, as well as a pig killer convicted to death who Max befriended earlier. The children, Max and the pig killer, try to flee, chased by Auntie and her men. Max leads the gang to the home of the pilot, who he coerces into flying them to safety. When Auntie's men are too close, Max has to stay behind and play a game of chicken with the attackers, clearing a path for the pilot to take off. And with Master gone, Auntie tells Max, Goodbye, soldier, and leaves him in the desert. And we see the children were flown to Sydney, where they begin to rebuild that city, leaving us with a lengthy monologue as credits roll. There's a lot of story here compared to the previous Mad Max films, I'm just gonna say. Yeah, they do something different here. I do feel like you've done chase movies for the first two. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna do just another chase? I'm sure they could have done that. That's kind of what Fury Road looks like, is an hour and a half chase. We just finished seven of the Fast and Furious films that did that, and I don't have a problem. Oh, they got really tiresome after two. <laughs> Says the man who likes six the most. <laughs> That's when it got crazy. And I do feel like they go big here and they're going to hold off. We'll get a chase later. But I love the way this opens. I, I read, it doesn't say it in the film, but I read this is taking place 15 years after Road Warrior. And we get this long aerial shot of Max and you see the dust cloud and you're like, oh, there he is driving the interceptor around. No, it's being pulled by camels now. He's totally destitute. He doesn't even have his car at this point. It sets you up early that this is going going to be a different kind of film. Hey, we have a long shot. You know what else we have? Long hair. I stayed for the credits. Cheryl Newton, you will never be hired for anything I do. You are the worst <laughs> wig maker in Hollywood. You take the sexiest man alive and put this dog pelt on him? I'm so glad when he gets his hair cut, he looks so much better. I couldn't believe he got his hair cut, but it finally explained why he wore this Slayer wig <laughs> for the first half of the movie. What is up with Max at this point? I thought he was the road 
Road Warrior, not Lawrence of the Outback. I mean, he's there in like this robe and this mask with all his camels. This is not what I pictured for Max at the end of the Road Warrior was he kind of looks like an outcast from Little House on the Prairie, Middle Eastern style. They did leave him with a tanker full of sand, Arnie. I mean, where is he going to get the fossil fuel? I think that's the point, right? Enough time has passed by where people aren't able to drive on roads anymore, that we've lost that element of civilization, that everything is kind of hand-cranked. When he gets to town, everything is going to be powered by cogs and wheels and pig shit. You know, I think we've lost the ability to drive vehicles, which would explain why there's no car chase until the very end. And Bruce Spence is back, and I was happy to see him, but is this the gyro captain back? I mean, he's flying, which would make sense for that character, but it's like he and Max don't remember each other from, you said, 15 years ago, Jacob? That's what the wiki said that I read. Yeah, and this is not the feral child. I mean, for a second here, I thought that this was going to be a direct connection to maybe a few months from where they left Max, but no, I guess they just enjoy Bruce Spence and wanted to have him have a place in this story, this can't be the same aviator. Yeah, Bruce Spence has a name this time. He's not just the captain. He's Jedediah, and there's Jedediah Jr. I can't believe they found a kid that looks like how I would imagine Bruce Spence is a little kid. Lanky and kind of awkward looking. Are we sure it's not Bruce Spence's child? It has a different last name. Kind of meaningless, but okay. But yeah, there has been debate. Is this the same character? Well, we're told in Road Warrior that character was leader of this tribe and stayed with them. No, the little kid was the... Oh, yeah, he became leader before the kid, right? Yes, he led the tribe until the kid took over. So I think this is a different character. It's Australia. You got to use Bruce Spence. So much character in that face. They give him a different look this time. Yeah, it's somewhat disconnected. I think this is a Mad Max tradition. One of the characters that was strapped to a car in Road warrior was the actor that played Benno from the first Mad Max film. And I've read with Fury Road, Toe Cutter, at least the actor that played Toe Cutter is coming back. So I think this is a bit of an Australian tradition, at least for the Mad Max films. Recast, same actor, different role. It was confusing. I'll just say that because I thought we were connecting, especially having just rewatched the Road Warrior. And I tried to think when Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome came out in 85, VHS was a pretty popular thing. It was still really expensive. It wasn't in every home for a couple more years, but people could have seen both the previous Mad Max films and then gone and seen Thunderdome. They could have made it connected if they really wanted to. It wouldn't have been that hard to write it out of continuity of we never saw him again, and if you're picking up so late, well, this is the point where they see him. But they decided they weren't doing the Road Warrior. I think that's actually the decision that's being made. Each movie feels different. The first movie feels like a vigilante movie. The second one feels like a Carpocalypse Armageddon Western. And this one, it's got its own feel, too. Two of them, in fact. At the beginning, I feel Monty Python humor here. You know, Time Bandits, Terry Gilliam. It becomes Return of the Jedi with Ewoks later. Yes, I thought that, too. I actually was pointing that out to Marjorie. I'm like, it's just the Ewoks. That's all the kids are. I have a different reference point, but maybe. We'll get there when we get there, but I think the strongest part is this opening here. I've never taken the Max, but I really do like how he falls into this situation of being a high 
hired gun here in Bartertown. I love Bartertown. This is my favorite thing of this entire movie is Bartertown. I love its entire look. I love the people in it. I love the first thing Max sees when he gets there is a guy trying to sell him nuclear water and just doesn't give a shit. I just really like this idea that in this post-apocalyptic world, people would need to trade stuff and you could capitalize on that and make an entire city out of it. Every piece, every moment of this city is every bit as good as what I thought the last movie had. Yeah, it's a slower pace. We're seeing Max, I guess, at his lowest point here. Well, maybe not as low as when he lost his wife and child, but as a loner, he's lost his car. He's lost everything he has. And yeah, I love this barter town. It's like, here's some pelts. Can I get an hour with the whores? And I just, I love the look. I love the idea of rebuilding civilization here. It's either crazy S&M gear that the villains are wearing or crazy car crashes or just a crazy idea of the post-apocalypse. Yeah, I like things that are about a place. And so far, Mad Max hasn't really been about anything. I don't feel like it is a satire. But now I feel like we're creeping up towards social satire. I'm not sure what Barter Town is going to yield, but I know that, yeah, their queen lives in this penthouse that's like on this one little wobbly stick that you have to ride a human manned elevator to get up and it's all powered by these low lives and big shit beneath her. I am sensing a sort of metropolis style social deconstruction. And I do want to call out the score here. I think this score is heads and tails better than the last two films, which were basically the same pieces of music. I love the Barter Town theme, I'll call it. It's just an all percussion and just beats and drums. It just fits this feeling of these people trying to rebuild society and yeah, using cogs and wheels. I even like when they get into that kind of rocky jazz saxophone theme. There is nothing more mid-80s than saxophone. I mean, St. Elmo's Fire, you listen to the music of that time, sax was everywhere. I loved it. I did notice, especially when the saxophone player came in in Barter Town, there is a lot of sax in the score. I like it. I actually noticed the score because it goes to shit later on. It's like an opera. But in Barter Town, it's really cool. Yeah, I do wonder if they're trying to fake us out. Like when Max is taken up to see Auntie or Auntie, depending what part of the world you're from, there's saxophone playing. I'm laughing. I'm like, this has got to be a reference to that first one. I do wonder the way they zoom in on Max, like were they trying to fake us out that maybe this is his wife? She survived. They brought her here. She's playing that saxophone. No, it's a blind Asian guy. But I do feel this is a reference to that first film with that sax playing scene. Why else would you have a sax player there besides it's the 80s? Yeah, I, I actually think it is largely the 80s and a saxophone is going to be in the theme song that Tina is going to sing. So maybe this is the Muzak version. This is what passes for Muzak when you don't have electricity. You just get some Yakuza guy. <laughs> but Tina, a great introduction for her. If you didn't know she was coming, if you hadn't seen the poster, this is a tremendous, I mean, the yes. shoulder pads. I think this woman pioneered that. I remember my mom <laughs> wearing coats <laughs> with shoulder. I would go into the laundry, you know, and pull out things from the dryer and be like, what are these puffy pillow things? Women were putting shoulder pads in their coats after this movie. Really? She started this? I just thought that that was the 80s look. I'd never credited her for that. I never saw it before 1985. And I don't know where she's getting that accent from, but it's fantastic, <laughs> I darling. Love it. I do too. It's Master Blaster. She could say that all day. I'm happy. Yeah, it's not her later Euro accents. It's not her normal voice. I don't know what she's doing here. Hey, raggedy man. Yeah, she's tremendous. She steals the movie from Mel, and Mel's trying. I do feel like they are grafting Mel more in a Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford mode. You know, he gets taken to this collection where you hand over all 
all your guns and he proves his marksmanship by shooting somebody's headdress off. I do feel like they're trying to set him up as that kind of gruff, heroic Indiana Jones character. But once Tina shows up, I'm forgetting about Max again. My thing with Max is just preview how I feel with him for the rest of this film. I feel like he's our point of view character. Like that's who we're seeing these crazy worlds from his point of view. I don't know if he's ever supposed to really do anything in these films, except he does cool stuff. He does car chases and kills people. But as far as a character arc, I'm never drawn to him as much as Toe Cutter or to Anti-Entity or to Humongous. Like there are such big characters in all these films that Mel Gibson's Mad Max doesn't seem as significant as he should having the title role. We don't know what he wants. The only thing we know in the beginning of this movie is he wants his stuff back. He's found his camel. He knows that the pilot came here and sold his stuff because it's a barter town. It got bartered away. And we even see Jedediah in a few shots here laughing, snickering about what he's done. We know he wants to get his stuff back. He has nothing else going for him. So, yeah, I like the idea that he now has to play assassin, that he is going to be hired as a gunslinger against this woman enemy. And the enemy is a friend of the family, so to speak. It's someone that she desperately needs to keep her town running. Yeah, we don't get all the politics that are going on here, but I like that there's going to be some setup. They want to get rid of the blaster part of Master Blaster, but they can't just go in and kill him because he's family and they have these rules. It's this big political conspiracy, which, again, I'm not expecting in a Mad Max film. And I like this development. I like that we're telling something a bit more complex here. Yeah, this entire politics situation Situation, I'm not sure if I understand. I mean, what is it that Tina Turner does to rule the town? And what is it that Master Blaster offers that she can't usurp? I mean, <laughs> I think she has bad management skills because as a person who runs the show, I would not allow any one person to be a nexus of knowledge. What would you do? You bring somebody in, train him as an apprentice to Master Blaster. So if something were to happen, if Master were to fall, fall into the pig pen and be stomped. I don't know if you saw the group here in Bartertown, Arnie. I don't know how many choices they have. But Arnie... Isn't Master the IT guy? I've seen this time and again in office situations. <laughs> he is. He has all this knowledge that no one else knows how to do, so he could just do nothing. And they, like, have to ba bow to him. That's what she resents. She would love to fire this guy. Oh, I love that scene where she has to say who rules Barter Town, and there's such humiliation in her voice and in her face. It actually hurts me to have to see Tina Turner do that. Yeah, I agree. That's what it's really about. It's petty. It's a petty grievance. There's nothing that he's doing that she wants him to stop. She just doesn't like the fact that people may respect him more, or it may secretly harbor the feeling that he's the real runner of this town. She has a nice monologue where she talks about how she came from nothing, and that the nuclear war actually made her a somebody, because she was able to create a town from scratch. She doesn't want that taken away, and so maybe she's paranoid, maybe she's overreacting, but she sees Master's control and his bragging and, and his humiliation of her over this microphone as something that is worthy of hiring a killer. And at this point, I think she's right. I mean, when you see Master Blaster humiliate her like that, and when you see the land which Master Blaster runs, I mean, it's like she has the above ground world and he has the underworld. They call it underworld. Literally underworld. He seems like a slave driver there. He's running prisoners who are getting life sentences and he's whipping people. He's abusing people. I firmly believed, especially because it was Tina Turner, that she was the good person in 
in this, and Master Blaster was our villain. They fooled me. First of all, I just want to give a shout out to Angelo Rosido, who is, I don't know if you've ever seen Freaks, but coined the phrase, one of us, one of us. Oh, okay. He was way back in 1932's Todd Browning's, one of his horror movies he made after Dracula. It's really worth digging up if you haven't seen it. I didn't realize it was him. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic. I didn't know that was him either, though. It's him. He's right there at, at where he belongs. He deserves to be in this power play. I think that they're equally scary. I believe this will end with Mad Max in charge of this town. I think he's going to inherit sheriff duties. He'll finally find a home. You've introduced him as a nomad that has nothing. I think, wrongly so, I think that both of these people are going to be taken down as they try to destroy each other. That's what I think is happening here. That Tina Turner is like the Wicked Witch of the West and then the Freak and his muscle men are underground going to cage match. And it's all building to Thunderdome. We are going to find out that there is a way of handling disagreements in this town that prevents another nuclear war. I love the idea that we don't want things to escalate for hard feelings to harbor, so the way we handle it is by creating a gladiator ring. And the interesting thing, it's not just that it's this dome and they're going to be on giant slingshots jumping around. I love the way Thunderdome is introduced, and we're going to see this motif later when we go beyond Thunderdome, but we get maybe my favorite character in this film, Dr. Dealgood, this, like, announcer, and he's got to talk about shoulder pads. I love this guy. I just love the thought that when the shit goes down and the nukes hit, there's one motherfucker who's like, I need my tux. There's a sign. It's not just Thunderdome. It's Thunderdome Live. And he says, welcome to another edition. This is all being played out like these were people that were raised off television. Everything feels like, oh, we never had to go through any hard times. We sat around, we watched our television sets, and then the world went to shit. And as we're trying to rebuild it, we're reconstructing it through what we saw on television. I think it's a subtle piece of imagery that George Miller is doing here, and we'll get it more overt when we get beyond Thunderdome with the children, but Tina Turner says she was a nobody. I think she might have been Tina Turner before she's auntie, because I love the idea that there's a code of law that's just based on rhymes. Bust the deal, spin the wheel. Only a pop star would come up with that. It's this whole world, there's a simplicity to it that just tells me this was built off of people who only know about civilization from television. Well, then let me ask you this, because it's something I don't have the answer for. Are we to think bad of these people that they have a Thunderdome? Or was this actually a very pragmatic, good solution to a post-apocalyptic, conflicted world where people will kill each other over bartered goods, so you had to have a way of keeping order? I have no problem with them having a Thunderdome. I mean, keep in mind, this was the mid-80s, and more than shoulder pads, this was when WWF came out. And I remember the cage match, and there was something just so frightening about a cage match. You're actually trapped in there with them. I see this as just, yeah, you mentioned rebuilding society off of television, Jacob. I see the Thunderdome as the ultimate cage match. What's really funny is how much two men enter, one man leaves has just become ingrained in society. I hear it all the time on TV, in podcasts. I thought it was like from some Bruce Lee movie or something. I had no idea it was from this. Yeah, I think it's a philosophy at least worth testing, you know. Two nations aren't getting along. Each of you pick a warrior, fight it out. The one who wins, well, you're the winner. I, I guess it's a little brute force, not very diplomatic, but I see it as a, yeah, especially a post-apocalyptic world that came out of war. Sure, this would make sense. Instead of building armies and fighting and destroying the world again, have those two people that have a difference fight it out and one of them's got to kill the other one. I think there's something personal about that. Are you willing to have a petty fight over something that 
is going to end up in death. It's like the Wild West, though, right? I mean, when a petty fight can end up in guns drawn at 10 paces. It's like Hollywood's version of the Wild West. But it's not a gladiator entertainment sport. I don't get the sense that they manufacture these problems to keep people pacified and not focused on real problems. Like, I believe, yeah, there's a fan base. There's people that are more than happy to supply chainsaws and cheer the people on and wait for the kill shot. But I believe that really they are trying to quell anger and they are trying to have a civilized society by confining violence to this one crazy dome. Because Max isn't supposed to kill him here, right? I believe that originally he goes to work down shoveling shit. I think that that's where the hit is going to be. No, no. They spell out the rules early on, the deal that they're going to make. They can't know that Max is working for Auntie. It's got to be a fair fight. It's going to be to the death. And they have these rules how these fights are going to break out. He goes to work with the pigs and shovel pig shit because he says he wants to get a closer look. He wants to do some recon and find out what he's up against. And that's where we're going to find out, oh, blaster sensitive to high-pitched noises. So it was always going to be Thunderdome. That was just to get a sneak peek. That's my take because as soon as they go to have a conflict, the law comes in and says to Thunderdome with you two. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to pick a fight with Master Blaster. He seems to try to fight everyone. I don't know why he doesn't just go to the Thunderdome every night. Kind of sounds like he does. Master says, give him 20 men. He still be the only one alive or whatever broken English. But it's Master who asked for Thunderdome. You know, he is the one that, I mean, maybe he's walking into their trap. But I got the sense that, well, when they're messing with Mel's stuff down there, he could just as easily have done it there. And no, I got the sense they don't want this to look like an assassination. Again, there's politics going on here. They want this to look like a clean kill. So when they take power of Underworld, no one's questioning. Why. Right. And again, all they want is the big guy killed, not even because they have anything against him. We're going to find out he's a gentle giant, but really because that's the only way to humble the brains. They can't kill Master. He has to kill Blaster, which I have to ask, isn't it really three men enter, two men leave? Master never got in. Master stayed on the outside. Only Blaster went in. Okay, good point. I was thinking the same thing, but you say that Blaster is a gentle giant. He ain't really all that gentle. He is grabbing the melee weapons, grabbing the knives, grabbing people by the throat before he gets in the dome. He is brutal. So when it all comes down and Max is like, I won't kill him because he isn't fully mentally able. It's like, but he's still kind of an asshole, you know? Yeah, but I mean, even in real life, if someone that's not at a certain IQ level, even if they kill someone, we don't give them the chair. That's just seen as this is a person that was easily manipulated. I get Max's reasoning why once that helmet comes off, why he doesn't want to kill him. He is fighting a child that has been stared the wrong way. I do get that. I mean, I understand his reasoning. By the same token, I'm trying to view this as a post-apocalyptic world where it's kill or be killed. And this is actually really important to this movie because we are going to, for the rest of this movie, see Master as a victim who needs to be rescued. But Master has been making Blaster the villain here? I mean, you can't have it where both of these guys are good people when they got their way through sheer brute force and intimidation. I mean, they beat people up, and if he was going in the Thunderdome quite regularly, then Blaster has killed many men. So, at what point are we supposed to go, oh, he's just mentally challenged and the other one's just a little guy, so we shouldn't hate them. I think you realize 
realize that at the point you realize that this is no longer an R-rated franchise, but a PG-13 movie meant to appeal to younger audiences who aren't, I guess, supposed to want to see these bad guys die. They pull punches here. There's just no way around it. That, yes, we start off with some gnarly villains, and by the end of it, I don't think we're supposed to hate anyone. Yeah, we do see it in this fight in Thunderdome, which, I, again, just especially as a child, seeing this, just opening my imagination. Yeah, we're not just going to be in an arena like gladiators fighting. We're going to be hooked up to bungee cords and jumping and flipping around and grabbing chainsaws that are mounted on the top of this dome. But there's times where they go and, the, you know, they hit the audience instead of the person they're fighting. We don't see blood. I think that would be more satirical if these people are cheering on this fight and they're the ones dying as they're watching it. That does explain a hell of a lot, the PG-13. I was unaware. I thought we were watching a wholly R-rated franchise. It just seems like they pulled it up in the violence. There's lots of shits and there's even a fuck in this. But when it comes to the violence, it's pretty bloodless. And I think this Thunderdome stuff is good. I'm surprised this is the only time we'll be in Thunderdome. I'm stunned, actually. I had no idea that this is my one and only match. I honestly thought he and Tina were going to get in it at the end. I had a memory, I thought, from the video of Tina, like, jumping all around the dome. Maybe she did in the video. It wasn't on the Blu-ray. She does jump down into the dome. Yeah, she comes in very dramatically on a chair on a rope. Yeah, and she does leap down, but I had a memory of her fighting it, and honestly, this movie is horribly titled because beyond Thunderdome, we get in the dome once. It is not deserving of the title other than it's the coolest conceit in the movie. Come on, Beyond Barter Town doesn't have the same ring to it. It's a good title. I just, I ask, should they have gone Beyond Thunderdome? I think it should have been Mad Max in Thunderdome, honestly. We could have spent the whole movie in Barter Town. It is rich in character, it is rich in conflict. You have two great villains or whatever whatever you want to call them. I think this is where the movie needs to be, but the creators do not. He breaks the deal in a very weird, not necessary way. For some reason, he decides to out the fact that Anti was behind him getting in the ring to begin with. Well, that's not even the deal that he'll bust. I think the deal he busts is that he didn't kill Master, and that was the deal, that he would kill Master, and he comes out and says he's not going to do it and reveals that he had this whole thing going on with Anti, and that's when they say bust the deal, spin the wheel. Oh, Oh, okay. I thought that it was the fact that Master knew there was a deal that made Anti put him on the wheel. Because Blaster is killed. Yeah, that's what I thought too. But Max didn't do it. No, Max didn't do it. But because he revealed and betrayed Anti, that's why he gets the wheel. Yeah, he also busts the clause that no one could know he was working for Anti. I mean, there was all these clauses with the deal that he busts. I think that's the greater sin because she gets what she wants. She gets Blaster killed. Iron Bar is in the right. Who cares who fires the crossbow, right? As long as... Master's ride is no longer alive, but it's the fact that Mel Gibson now has exposed her as being a manipulator and maybe that's going to cost her points with the community. I think what this movie is lacking is a point of view character of a citizen of Barter Town. It seems like it's a community of nomads who come in when they need to sell their old records to get some money, and really what we need to know is what people think of these political figures. Yeah, if we didn't go beyond Thunderdome, if we stayed here in Barter Town, that could have been the story, watching Auntie losing control, her powers being questioned because there was this outright assassination and, you know, I, again, somehow Max would get involved. I almost see this as a fistful of dollars or Yojimbo, where you have two sides, Auntie and Master Blaster. Neither are good. They're two gangs, both fighting for control over this place, but we never see the consequences, really, of this deal being broken. Everyone knowing that Auntie is an assassinator, that she's willing to kill. Yeah, I mean, if he had spun a different wheel and got 
amputation, I think the movie would have remained here and given me more of what I most enjoy that this movie has to offer. But he picks Gulag, or he receives Gulag, and that means he's tied up backwards on a horse with a giant paper mache mask going off to an entirely different film. Faint memories of Mardi Gras or something going on in this town. Don't they wear those at Mardi Gras? Yeah, there was a movie called Frank. I don't know if you guys saw it, but there was a, a very strange indie about a rock star who only wore this head. He looks like he belongs in Bartertown when he's wearing it. I'll put it that way. But he doesn't stay in Bartertown. And it's curious to me. I just didn't know that this movie was going to take this turn. I'm not going to say I don't like what happens next, but I will say this. I don't see that what happens next has anything to do with what was set up here. I'll agree with you that I don't see where it comes from, and I will say what you won't. I don't like what happens next. The moment Max gets on that horse, this movie goes down the shitter. Nothing that happens after he gets on that horse makes any sense. I need people to explain this to me. First of all, why is a ride on the horse the gulag? Well, you know, the gulags were in Russia. I thought they were like work camps. It was essentially a concentration camp. Yeah, I did too. So why is a ride on a horse the same as a concentration camp? Well, I mean, he's being taken out to the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's Siberia. That's the reference I'm getting. Uh, you're right. It doesn't entirely make sense. He's being banished to a place he couldn't possibly live, where people are sucked into the sand if they stay still, and there's no water for miles, and hell, he's tied up. So how could he even fend for himself, even if he could find, you know, supplies? And I think the people that have built a barter town, and they're going off fate memories they have. Oh yeah, Gulag, that was something that was bad. We'll name a punishment after that. I do see these as people like just trying to live off memories of what was before. Alright, and then a monkey brings him water. Now there was a monkey early on in the movie. Yeah, that was his monkey. Is this his monkey? Yeah, yeah, all his stuff is in Barter Town, and the monkey for some reason decided to hang out in Underworld, where Max became friends with a pig killer. They have most of the people that are shoveling shit aren't like Max, they're prisoners. And there's this guy named Pig Killer who actually was his co-star in Gallipoli. He's got a severe downgrade here. He's looking real bad. But he sends the monkey out to, with water to help him out. I got to imagine the producers empathize with Pig Killer. Those pigs almost shut down production. There's like 400 of them. A court got involved, Australian court, and said, no, you got to come up with some kind of sanitation, safety rules before you could continue to film this. Like people were wearing hazmat suits. I guess pig shit really is bad for you. That was real pig shit? I mean, I I got a simple solution for that. Don't actually use real pig shit. Oh my God. I don't know if it was all real, but there was enough of a concern with 400 pigs there. You get enough pigs like that, they're going to shit. Yes. I think that's just the problem. I get you. All right. So uh, yeah, we're in the days before they could CGI the pigs. They had to have real <laughs> livestock and that comes with real challenges. Comes with real shit. <laughs> this is my question with Pig Killer, which I guess is his name. That's what's branded on him. Why does he help Max? I, they have a little conversation when Max is down there. I never felt like they kicked it off and they're besties now. I do wonder, we'll find out once Max meets these children, we'll find out the adults left looking for help. And this pig killer, he says he has a family. I do wonder if this is someone that journeyed, one of those adults or something that journeyed away from these kids. And that's why he's willing to help them out in hopes that he'll find them or something. But that's just me extrapolating. I really don't understand why he sends that monkey to help him. Yeah, because that's not confirmed by the reunion. I mean, he's going to meet the kids and no Nobody's like, oh, I remember you, Dad. I mean, no. I thought it was going there, too. I think he rallies around Max because he believes what I believe. Max is going to be the champion of 
barter town. He is going to end up being the sheriff. All of the prisoners are going to be free, and he is going to lead this community in a more democratic society way. That's what I think is happening, and I think this guy is putting his chips on this stranger to free him, so he's going to do whatever he can to keep him alive. But you're projecting a hell of a lot. You are helping this story with stuff that isn't in it. We're going to talk about how far away it goes away from what I expect to be happening in this movie. Okay, but to get back to the gulag, so the girl who finds Max had no part of the monkey in the water. No, she was out doing her patrolling and happens to find Max. Okay, that was confusing to me. Yeah, we'll find out that all of these kids live in a crack in the earth, which is like the first time we're seeing greenery and water. It's a place untouched by radiation and damage. It literally escaped the nuclear sandstorm annihilation that has destroyed everywhere else in Australia. And now help me understand this. These kids crashed before the nuclear war, after the nuclear war, at the time of the bombs going off and the EMP caused their crash? What? I don't know, Cornelius. I just have seen Planet <laughs> of the Apes. And I feel like they wanted to have a Planet of the Apes kind of storyline here. I don't know that it's justified because I didn't know the timeline. I didn't know how far this was removed from the nuclear war or the last movie or what have you. 15 years, well, then, yeah, I guess maybe it could be considered that it was a plane full of babies or expectant mothers. We do find out one of them's pregnant, so they are sexually active. Yes, there is a pregnant one now, but if it's been 15 years since the nuclear blast, we can presume all of these kids are somewhere between 12 and 20, right? Yeah, there's some young ones in there, too. Look, I said this with Road Warrior, that this is a series where the timeline never seems set in place. Like, even seeing the trailers for Fury Road. I don't know if that's supposed to take place years after this film, because it looks like it's even crazier. I don't know how things are evolving in this world. It just seems like, oh, we got more money, let's go bigger. But yeah, these kids, they crashed. There were adults, we'll learn that, and those adults eventually left to look for help. Yeah. And left all the kids. Maybe the adults that stayed behind are dead. They are dead. There's a memorial to them. Yeah, I was really confused, because these kids have been there a long time. I mean, they were not recently left. This has all become a thing of legend. It feels like these kids are third or fourth generation, but obviously they aren't. No, I can't believe it's been that long. It feels that way from the way they speak of the legend, that they have hieroglyphics that tell the story of Tomorrow Morrow Land. I get the sense that Savannah, which is the girl that found Max, and the boy, I think his name is Slake, are ones that could have been on the plane, and maybe actually knew Captain Walker as a real person and not just a legend. And he went away, either walking to go find help, or got buried with the rest of the people, and they have been trying to remember for the younger generations that were too young to understand. Again, I asked, was this a plane full of kids? It could have been just a bunch of adults who fucked a lot after it crashed. I mean, they are living in a nice paradise. A baby boom. That definitely could have happened. You could complain about these kids. I do love this whole piece of exposition about Captain Walker. Again, they're going to go into a television motif. How can you understand the exposition about Captain Walker? I rewound a couple times and I got it. But if it were one viewing in a movie theater, couldn't. I've seen this film 
evolve enough to know it. I mean, they got this actual wood frame, like something has been passed down about television or this is just satire here. It becomes, again, much more obvious what they're doing. The poxy clips, they have all this broken language. It's a game of telephone. It's been passed down over and over and over orally and they've mixed up the words. But I do like the ideas here. I don't understand the timeline. I'll give you that. It doesn't make sense. But I do like this weird civilization. None of Miller's ideas really make sense when you think about them. Like, why would the dogs of war dress the way they do? But it's awesome looking. And then they say, okay, all the kids, you stay here. All the adults, let's go. I didn't get the sense they all left. I thought some had died. Yeah, there was a list of like 20 or something. They show a list of the names of the adults who left to go look for help. There was a riff here. There was those who wanted to just stay. And we'll see this with Max. He wants to stay. And there's those who wanted to go out and find civilization. Again, they're only going to find a hive of scum and villainy with Barter Town. And Max warns them as much. They're the Lost Boys, right? I mean, the reference point here, the obvious one, is Peter Pan. I don't know if you guys ever saw Walkabout, but there was a really trippy early 70s movie in which two kids get stranded in the Australian outback and meet a tribesman and go on this really crazy trek. It's highly surreal. It's done by the man that made The Man Who Fell to Earth and some really trippy 70s movies. It's got actually one of the best openings I've ever seen in a movie ever. The first three minutes are some of the most evocative cinema I've ever seen. I can't say start to finish it it's great, but you should definitely see it. And I feel like that's all of the sudden this Terry Gilliam Mad Max satire has become this poetic walkabout retread. I have not seen that, but yeah, I definitely got the Peter Pan Lost Boys vibe from the look, from the way they rappel down these ropes, kind of like the kids and Peter Pan could fly. The whole thing was giving me that vibe. And man, I had to ask, where did the story just jump the rails? Because there is not a narrative here. This is not a story of Mad Max and his revenge to get his stuff. This is a bunch of shit that happens to Max one day. These films, they're music and motion picture form. George Miller, with Fury Road, he wants to make a film where you don't need subtitles. And I really feel like that is the driving force behind a lot of the Mad Max stuff. It's such a visceral movie. It's about the visuals. Here, though, in Beyond Thunderdome, he's getting into a storyline and it's getting muddled because I don't think he's used to really sticking to those kind of story plot points. Well, from what you tell me, this is all Ogilvy's fault. The directing might be. And you said he wants a movie that you don't need subtitles. It's funny because when it came to these kids, I needed subtitles. But come on, Arnie. I hear that you don't like that this is where it's gone. I think we're in solidarity. This wasn't the movie I thought you were giving me. There's still some good stuff here. This haunting stuff when they're all standing on the plane howling. That is a emotionally evocative moment. I don't feel like this is a badly made movie now. Just an inexplicably unconnected and untethered from what we just saw. Because it is so unconnected, it's funny. This movie is like Samson from The Myth. Because the moment Mel lost his hair, this movie lost its way. And it's weird because his hair is so much better short. I do agree there. I'm not as upset with this. I'm still enjoying it. I think we spend a little too much time with the Lost Boys or the Waiting Ones, I believe they're called. Is there a real storyline here? Probably not. I think that's the case with Mad Max and even Road Warrior. I guess there's a storyline there, but mostly it's a vehicle for doing car chases. Here, we're not getting the car chases. 
We haven't had a car chase yet. And I think that's the difference here. If you're going to enjoy this, it's based on all the crazy post-apocalyptic ideas they're throwing out. And I am enjoying that. All of a sudden, the star of this movie is Savannah. And who saw that coming? Yeah, that's more important. I mean, Mel even punches her out. Yeah, exactly. Mel is suddenly beating on a teenage girl who wants to go and prove that there's a better world out there. I mean, it's Savannah's movie and nobody wants that. This should be Max's movie, or at the very least, this should be Tina and Master's movie. But that it's suddenly been inherited by a character that we don't know who has a false notion of the universe, then no, this should not be the story about her finding out what we already know. That there is no civilization anymore. And let me just say where my problem is with this. You mentioned Max as a passive character, and I definitely felt that. I mean, what does he want to do? Just live in this oasis and never go and do anything again? There's food, there's kids, there's women who will soon be of legal age. So he's just fine here? Because that is a problem for me that the only reason that he would ever leave this oasis is to try to find the kids. And I was thinking, these kids are like the Ewoks. Because in Return of the Jedi, the rebels, they get waylaid, they run across a primitive society. They think these primitives are a pain in the ass. But then when the final battle comes, you realize you couldn't have won without their help. And I'm like, well, why did Return of the Jedi work and this fail? Do I need to reevaluate my thinking of Return of the Jedi? Well, we're going to be doing that later this year. But the difference being the Ewoks took the Rebels captive. The Rebels had a mission on that planet. The Ewoks were actually a barrier to it. So in that way, they were yet another obstacle for our heroes to overcome. Here, these kids are pseudo worship Max, and it's only the few who don't worship him that cause a bit of a problem. But he's more than happy just to kind of lay around. He's got nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so I have lost respect for this character in this second half of the movie. He's never had it though. I want to point out, this has always been a problem from the first movie. Max has been the least interesting thing about the Mad Max movies. And I'm not putting that on Mel, although I've already been upfront with my bias of not really liking him as an actor or many of the other movie roles that he's played, but I don't think anybody could make this character much more interesting than the way that he's been confined and undefined by these scripts. The problem is that, as you say, Jacob, he's just meant to be an outsider to a much more interesting world that he runs into, and that should never be. Good drama is about fully developed characters clashing and confronting other societies, other characters. The idea that we have one that's a blank, and he's going to go to a place where there are more interesting people people means we don't want to watch him. I don't know. It can work. I mean, there have been films where that works. Force Gump? <laughs> I was thinking, again, the Man With No Name trilogy, but here, this is the first time I've felt this way about Max. Now, I felt it throughout all these films. Yeah, it is a bigger problem here because we haven't got to the chase yet. There's only one chase, and all of this has been about politics and ideas of rebuilding society after the end of the world. Probably my biggest problem is Max, okay, I guess he has a character arc in this film that he decides to help people. That's his character arc twice. He's going to decide to go after Savannah and the other kids that followed her. And then again, at the end, he's going to decide to save the children by doing another selfless act. He doesn't have much to do except play this hero role. But yeah, Max is the least interesting. And that's a huge area of improvement. Maybe they'll improve that next week. I think he goes after Savannah basically because she doesn't mind him. And I think that he becomes a person that doesn't get on the plane at the end because he doesn't want to go with the kids. I never get the sense that he wants to be a part of this community that he's helping. He's pushing them away. So yeah, it is kind of strange that he basically 
actually at the insistence of this other child, this, I want to say Hannah Montana, but it's actually <laughs> Joanna Goanna. This little child basically wakes him up and says, hey, some of our tribe has gone off into the desert to prove you wrong. Well, you know, that's a chip on his shoulder. I told you there was nothing else, goddammit, and I'm going to go and spank you. So he goes marching off to drag them back. You know, this is the woman that he punched. So I don't see it as loving. And question, do we ever see the kids that he's leaving behind again? No. We'll see them. Um, I think they join up in Sydney, but we'll never see them in the final action scene. New people show up in Sydney, but those kids that were left, see ya. It's strange that Mel is trying to drag them back to this crack, and they just kind of forget that. I do feel something that could help this film. Make this not Max, for whatever reason, going after to save these kids from Bartertown. Make it a selfish thing. Make Bartertown, I don't know, has a shortage of water, and these kids show up with their water pouches. Auntie's gonna want to find out where they're from, and they're gonna invade this crack in the earth. So Max doesn't have to face off against Auntie and those people again, and that's why he's trying to rescue these kids. I think you guys are just missing the cultural time. This was the mid-80s. Who the fuck wants a jungle when you could have a city, right? I mean, nowadays we're into conservation and ooh, look at this little oasis. Isn't it pretty? No, you want Sydney. You want to live in the big city. You want the opera house. Uh, perhaps. We'll get there when we get there, but they don't even know that it exists. It's their tomorrow Morrowland. What they want is a city. When they show Max the Viewmaster of Dreams, what they're showing him is cities. They don't want to be primitives. They want to have a condo. They want to move on up to the deluxe apartment in the sky. No, this isn't a commentary on yuppies. This is, again, people raised on television. They're believing this false idea. They're believing the ads, the river of light, which is just a freeway shot with a long exposure time. These are people that have bought into commercialism and want something else. I don't think it's yuppies. It's people buying into an idea that's not actually there. And I'm not calling them yuppies. I'm just saying that's the mindset of when this movie was made. My favorite joke is when they show Mr. Walker, Mrs. Walker. It's a showgirl from like some Vegas review. They have a clearly distorted idea about what their future could be, which is why it's irritating that Savannah is going to suddenly take this movie and prove against all possibility that they can somehow live in the wreckage of Sydney and that's the same thing. But they don't get to Sydney. They get to Bartertown and they have no business here, right? They don't want to be there. They basically go there because that's that's where water is and they run out. When I was doing my plot summary, I had a hell of a question mark here of why do they go there again and sneak in through the sewer and end up in a prison? Nothing makes sense. It feels like scenes are missing. Well, no, they don't have enough water to get back. They can't cross the desert again. They need to get home. They see lights. They know they can get there. They're not sure they can turn around and get home. I think they've lost their bearings. What I needed to see in this Bartertown scene is if Savannah is the new main character, that she recognizes that this this isn't Marl land. That when she sees the pig shit, when she sees the way people are living and treating each other, when she sees Thunderdome, hey, would it be crazy to have one more Thunderdome scene? She realizes and abandons that dream of Marl land. What you forget though, Stuart, is that there's kids involved in these scenes, which means the other George is directing. And this almost feels like now we've gone into Goonies territory. We're going to be writing down food troughs. I don't even understand the action in Underworld 
world here. Max is like, we got to get Master. I'm not sure why. Maybe he could fix his car. I don't even think Master is the one that gets the train going. I think that's Pig Killer. So I'm not sure why he wants to get Master, how he could help him out. This whole scene is just like a rescue scene of Master. Like Master is being abused now. And even though he was a total dick, let's save him. That's our whole mission. Even though I've got a whole bunch of kids, let's also rescue Master. And if the Pig Killer wants to come too, okay. He's got a skill. I think you want to take Master along, not because you like him or feel sorry for him, but because he can find power. He can generate power from poop. If you're going to be that Machiavellian about it, you take Master, then you turn around and say to Auntie, hey, give me all the shit you promised and I give you Master. No, this is a rescue mission for reasons I don't know. Well, it ends up being that way. It ends up feeling very muddled. And again, I didn't know that we were going to leave Bartertown again or destroy it. But uh, that's kind of what happens. Inadvertently, I think they blow up the town while they're leaving on train. And now Auntie has no choice but to hunt them down. Yeah, they get this train going, which I guess sets off the methane gas. That's got to be a dangerous way. These aren't modern pipelines they're using to tunnel this gas. It just seems to be free floating there in Underworld. But I do love, yeah, they blow up Barter Town here. Like, it raises the stakes for Auntie. It's like, I got to get whoever's done this. It's This isn't just about some political intrigue. They are now destroying my entire dream. I'm becoming that nobody again. They're blowing it all up. Yeah, this becomes a PR move for her. The people are distraught. And the only thing she can do to maintain her leadership is offer their heads on a platter. And whenever you get a chance to have Tina Turner give a speech in this film, you're not losing points with me. Agreed. She's good. And I'm surprised. I actually came in just preparing to lampoon her anytime a singer tries to act. It's usually not good, but she is good. She's what this movie needs. She's certainly as fun as the humongous and toe cutter and anyone else we got. And she matches them in the craziness. I like the stories they've implied. But again, I'm surprised that they're not tying her back to this child community. I thought the auntie would literally be in the lineage bloodline of that plane crash. I thought she would have some history with it. I just thought there was some connection between the first part of the movie and the second. It is a stunner. But I don't care. It's a Mad Max movie. We've waited seven. 25 minutes and finally we're going to get what Mad Max movies do best and that is a big old dune buggy chase. And they're going to up it this time. We've seen cars chase each other. We've seen a semi truck. Now we're going to get a train. An actual train. Like there would be times where they're shooting this film and they're like oh crap we got to clear the tracks a real train is coming down. It sounds like they did this real indie style. It's like even if they have money now they're still acting like they're teenagers without permits running on the roads at 125 miles an hour. They had permits, but I guess they didn't have enough money to build their own track. I do feel like once we get the engines revving, any ill will that I had about where we've gone and where we're going kind of goes away. I mean, how can you beat a cowhide car, really? I'm glad they had that so I could recognize which car was (laughs) the good guy in it. You know, I'm like, that's just a cool car design. Oh, it's a visual cue. Thank you. I do believe that's the reason it's there. And it also gave me a crazy theory that once things simmer down, Speed Racer, that is the eventual future of this universe. I mean, they had cowboy car racers. It all seems connected to me. I agree. This chase is spectacular. And as thirsty as Mel was in the desert when the monkey brought him water, that's how I feel when this chase finally comes. Because I've sat through an hour and a half of this. And really, I enjoyed Barter Town, but it wasn't nearly as exciting exciting as the rest. It just had great art direction and concept. And then after the Morrow Morrowland detour, this is water to a dehydrating man for me. 
I've never been dehydrated, but I do feel like George Miller, this is what he does. I think, Jacob, you pointed it out, is like what he is most gifted at is channeling visual, non-dialogue-driven action movie. He should just make action movies all the time. He shouldn't write the scripts. He shouldn't be involved in characters. But Miller is at his best here. I mean, this is where he belongs. He doesn't need to try and make commentary. It's not what he wants to do with his characters. He doesn't even want characters. He wants chaos, and he's great at it. Again, he's doing a train this time and characters crawling all over the train. These cars are even souped up. I guess they're running off methane because it doesn't appear oil or gasoline exists anymore, but these things got huge jet turbines connected to them. Like, he is up the ante in every film. No pun intended. I really like when the skeleton kid, I think his name's Screwloose or whatever, like, he gets his own car and it drives in front of the train. I mean, there's some great stunt works with children or what presumably the stunt people look like children. I do love he doesn't get the driving. He pulls that frying pan and he figures that's staring it for a while. <laughs> but Tina Turner did drive her car. I doubt she was doing any of the dangerous moves, but she did drive her own vehicle in this, and she said they were very hard to control. I was already giving her props for this movie, but if she was actually out on a non-road driving that crazy-ass vehicle, that's, wow, hats off. I would have never done that. Never. I love the way it looks. I mean, just above the way the action is staged, the way Tina Turner steps in front of that window and the people are coming in from every side, all the camera angles, that crazy guy who just seems to be unable to die, the one with the kabuki mask like hanging above his head. Iron bar. Okay, him. It does become a little wily Coyote. I've never gotten that level of broad comedy out of Mad Max before. Yeah, when he's laying on the front of the train like screaming, that is a wily Coyote moment. And when he's hanging from the bar and doing like the legs up, jumping everything. I mean, there's a lot of silly cartoon humor with him. But it's looking great, and it's a really fun scene. That ends with a train robbery done by little Jedediah Jr. I do love the way that kid just, you know, stick him up. This is a robbery. Like, so much gusto in his voice. Leading them right back to their secret hideout underneath. I feel like this is what Mel should have done. He should have just found a hole somewhere and saddled up. I guess he just likes wandering. I guess he just likes traveling a road. He could never be happy in any one position. Yeah, I thought that the logical thing would be find a hiding spot, not grab the most conspicuous was vehicle and go, but it works for Max. I think he likes a good fight. And again, I don't feel like he wants to be on the plane with them. I know, I know when they're setting this up and saying the plane is heavy and there are a lot of kids in that back seat. I know there's no way he's getting off. But I don't think he wants to go with them. I don't get the sense that it's hard for him to say goodbye to any of these kids. I think they've written this character to never care, even as he's supposedly being their hero. Yeah, when that plane runs out of, I guess, runway, they're just on dirt. They hit the edge of a cliff and they got to turn around. It is lucky that screw loose pulls up, so now Max has a car to play this game of chicken with. And Miss Turner laughs and leaves? Really? Ain't we a pair, raggedy man? This has to be a rewrite, right? There was a different ending. She got killed, or they fought in a Thunderdome situation, or something. There had to be. This is horrible. They test marketed this, and nobody wanted to see Tina hurt, right? The Blu-ray of this is bare bones. It's got a trailer as an extra. I was able to find a little making of at the time on YouTube. There's not a 
whole lot of information about this film. This is the film that I think a lot of the fans are down on, kind of like Temple of Doom. If you listen to our Indiana Jones retrospective, that's the film that has like the bad reputation. Not saying that rethink that, but this film was critically applauded, like four out of four for Ebert, best film of the franchise for Roger Ebert here. But yeah, this ending, I don't want to see Tina Turner die. I don't care about Master, but Tina Turner, like all the other villains of this franchise, have been my favorite characters. I do feel like this is a mutual respect of soldiers facing off, and what is Max going to do anyway? It's almost the same situation as the Gulag. He's out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't have a car. She's turning around and leaving him there. Yeah, it's a cheat, though. I mean, we wanted a conflict. And particularly knowing, I mean, I guess we wouldn't have known it at the time, but knowing that Mel Gibson is never going to play this role again, you wanted him to find a home, right? We wanted to have him find that closure and to find a place that he could hang his hat. I did not want that. Really? Okay. Really, because I like him as a wandering badass. I don't want to see him neutered and domesticated again. This is the movie I came to see. This is the hero I came to witness. I don't want to see him find a home and just hang it up. Although I don't know that they thought they were necessarily coming back, did they, Jacob? I mean, did they know this was the end of their trilogy at the time, or did they think there might be Mad Max 4, 5, and 6? I don't know if George Miller at the time, again, he lost one of his friends because of this film. I don't think he was thinking about, oh, we'll do another one. He probably wanted to move on by this time. And he did. He would make other movies. And there was always talk, Arnie. There was always talk about a Mad Max sequel from 1986 on. But it would take 30 years and different people to see it happen. They do have an ending. This ending isn't about Max, though. They try to wrap up this world, give it somewhat of a happy ending. Max may be wandering somewhere, but these children, or at least some of the children, have flown off with Jedediah, and they've relit Sid They've got lights going. I don't know. Seeing the Sydney Opera House is not the same thing as the Statue of Liberty in the sand. Oh, you're such an American. They're trying (laughs) to find that moment of like, oh, the differences in Planet of the Apes, we had no idea they were on Earth. Here, we know very well that the kids are wrong to think that civilization is waiting on another planet. We know what they're going to find in the wasteland. True. My problem with this wasn't that the kids went to Sydney. I like the thought that they were the ones who were going to start rebuilding a society in a real city and not a barter town. You know, they're bringing in other people who come. But my issue is, isn't this the exact same ending of the last movie? A kid grew up and they started a new society and they monologued about how they owe it to Max and they never saw him again. I mean, this was just a retread to me. I don't know that it's a problem, but yes, it is all the same notes we saw before because it gives some kind of ending to a movie that is ending very abruptly and not in the way I anticipated. And this feels more like a closure to the trilogy. Yeah, sure. The people from that oil town, they went off, they started the Northern Tribe. It still sounds very tribal. Here it does feel like we have moved on past the apocalypse. Like, here is the open civilization. I didn't get that feeling at the end of The Road Warrior. Well, let's see how good your feeling was. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Jacob. I'm going to use George Miller's music analogy. Oh, I'll start playing the sax for you then. I don't know if I need it, but yeah, Mad Max, that first film, that is the high school punk band. It is sloppy. It's full of passion, though. We get Road Warrior. That band has tightened up. They've evolved musically. They could do a pretty entertaining song. We get to Beyond Thunderdome. This is, you know, you get a band, their sophomore album or their third or fourth or seventh album. They become a prog rock band now. Now it's all about the musical 
technical technicality and we've lost the furiness of it. But now there's a lot of ideas here. I love this vision. This movie is all over the place and there's maybe 10 minutes where I get bored with all these little kids, but I'm not so hung up on story with any of these Mad Max films. That's not what these are about. They survive despite not having strong stories. And this one, yeah, the best stuff is the first half of it in Barter Town, in Thunderdome. But we do get this great chase at the end and I think that's why most people come to a Mad Max film. So you might not like these kids. This connective tissue with all these different tribes going on might not be there. But for me, this is still a solid recommend. Stewart. Yeah, I'm going to take my cue from the theme song as well. We don't need another hero. It's a good thing. We're not going to get one. They don't fix Max. I've had this problem with Max. I am just adjusting my expectations now to realize that Miller cares about a post-apocalyptic, chaotic society. And who presents that to us, who our entry point into that is, is not his focus. And it should have been. I mean, I think I would like this trilogy a whole lot more if I liked Max more. But I do like this movie. I still stunned at the schism of this movie. I feel like it would be better as two completely separate movies, but I like both of them. I like the kids. I like the barter town. I just don't see that they mesh well together. And it's strange to me how it comes together and doesn't come together here in the climax. But you call this a very consistent trilogy. I agree with you. The disappointment is I still haven't found one I love. I'm going to recommend Green Arrow this, but it is not the emerald bright green arrow that I know I want to give and feel like maybe I will next week. But so far, I have been kind of mild on this franchise. I love the vision. I love the passion. I love the bad guys. But I still can't quite love the science fiction movie. And I'm waiting to see if maybe that will change. And I came out of watching this movie a couple days ago and preparing for this podcast. And I was a little undecided, but it felt pretty sure that this was going to be a weak red air. I mean, the children section of this is toxic, and my enjoyment of watching this movie plummeted, and while I do enjoy the chase at the end, it just didn't bring my enjoyment of the overall film back. It felt like way too little, way too late, and happening for unexplained reasons. But as I sat with the film for a couple days, I do really like Barter Town, I like Thunderdome, I like the melee combat between Max and Master Black. Blaster. Is this the first instance of wire foo? We see the wires. I was thinking that too. This is wire foo before they have the technology to remove the wires. Yeah, I like a lot of things there. So because of the direction, because of that chase at the end, I'm going to go weak recommend. I do enjoy enough of this movie that I would revisit it. But man, that entire third half hour is just so detrimental to the enjoyment of this film. I'll give George Miller the pass. George Ogilvie, I'm going to have just a blood vendetta against for the rest of my life for what he did to the Mad Max saga then. Of the three Mel Gibson films, this is the one I enjoyed least, and I really thought that would be Mad Max. Well, we're still one more. I'm not going to rank them yet. Again, I'm very optimistic. When I see these trailers, when I see other Tom Hardy movies, I feel like this is it, man. It's taken George Miller his entire life to build up to this point. He's done great moments before, but this could be the great Mad Max movie. Movie. Jacob, you've been promising me this whole time. 
Yeah, but it's not Mel, so, you know, no matter what, it's not going to be the same. If anything, it's like a reboot. All the better. Uh, again, Mel hasn't been the draw for me. I think we've all said that. Max here and Mel hasn't done much for us, so I don't mind the change. Yeah, I didn't like Bane, his character on Bane, but Tom Hardy's a great actor, and he's done great work. Locke, I think he's going to own the screen next week. Well, we will find out next week. And don't forget, in between now and Fury Road, our gold donation series is starting. It's going to lead up to Jurassic World, starting with Westworld. It's, I know that that's going to be an HBO TV series pretty soon, but what is that movie, Stuart? Yeah, it is the first draft of Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton authored the book Jurassic Park, but a decade and a half before, he was an aspiring film director who told about an amusement park that went crazy because it was populated by killer gunslinging robots. So I saw the movie once in childhood and uh, we'll be revisiting with both of you guys, I assume you're newbies, this Friday. Yep, so we will talk to you then and then back next week with Fury Road. So thank you for listening and now we live on only in your memories. There has been too much violence, too much pain. Just walk away. And I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mad Max Movie Retrospective. Where is she taking them? I want them back! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mad Max review, culminating with the review of the new film Mad Max Fury Road. We're going to stay here, and we're going to live a long time, and we're going to be thankful. Right? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Blade Runner, Minority Report, the RoboCop series, and more. Want to get through this? Let's go! You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is my family. I'm not going to leave these people. I'm staying. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. Where there was despair... Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. I got skills I can trade them. Sorry the brothel's full. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Anything you say, anything I say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, Alex, and Arnie. Up to my armpits in blood and shit. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. What's a little fallout, huh? Have a nice day! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've seen it, you've heard it, and you're still asking questions. 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Yeah, okay, but what does that mean? And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. We traveled far beyond the reach of men and machines. And the road warrior, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. It was Australia. I still picture it as wild and like Crocodile Dundee is the grip. <laughs> he might have been. It was a, a year before Crocodile Dundee became a thing. I didn't mean Paul Hogan. I just meant somebody <laughs> like Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> we'll know when we do that trilogy. Ooh. What? Nobody wants to see him in Hollywood? Right after Police Academy? Didn't he go to Los Angeles? <laughs> he did, and I've seen it. Yeah, croc <laughs> literally the, the premise of the film is in the title. Crocodile Dundee in Los Ooh. Angeles. Ooh, I bet the stink on that one. <laughs> that is when we know now playing just needs to end. When we get to, we're doing Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> it's time to hang up the mics. <laughs> oh, no, but come on, the reboot's coming. Is it? Oh, please, no. <laughs> no, I just, okay. it's gotta be, right? I mean, every <laughs> it other feels reboot is. that way. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to Crocodile Dundee right after Chris Police Chris Pratt! We'll get Chris Pratt! He's not on He's doing everything. So no, he's Pratt. the new Gutenberg for Police Academy, right? <laughs> uh, what? He he should be the new Gutenberg in Police Academy. There should be never be, a, there should never be a new Gutenberg of anything. <laughs> you can't recreate the Goot. <laughs> and then back next week with Thunder Road. Fury Road. Fury Road. <laughs> <laughs> this was Thunderdome. <laughs> But the man has nothing to offer. Dupe. Dupe. Damn. Dupe. Okay, now now you're into one of my secrets. When I do books and nachos, I just say dupe and say it again. So when I'm listening to it, I hear dupe. And then I know that's an edit point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never heard you do that no, before. No, you've never done that to us. <laughs> no, I just recorded the fucking long walk for four hours last night, so it's in my head. If I'm reading and I fuck up, I say dupe. You could have covered yourself. I mean, one of these people might have been named dupe. I don't know. I really had trouble this yeah. one. The language in this one, when we get to the kids, I don't know what anyone's saying. I almost turned on subtitles. <laughs>